Ramble. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Bada bing, bada boo. Welcome to this week's mini-sode of Rotten Mango. I'm your host, Stephanie Sue, And John was devastated when he got the call. His girlfriend of two and a half years, Robbie, had been terminally ill for the majority of their relationship. But now to know that she had passed away, I mean, it was heartbreaking. He had always prepared himself for something like this, but he realized he didn't factor in just how strong the grief was going to be, just how strong the misery and the yearning for her was going to be. I mean, this guy was a broken man. But then the call came. Hi, is this John? Yes, who is this? This is Robbie's twin sister. Oh, uh, yes, I've heard so much about you. I'm sorry we never got to meet. It's just been hard because, you know, we live a couple states away and work and that's okay. But I would love to come visit you now. I would love to meet the man that my twin sister had been so madly in love with and maybe it'll be closure for both of us. Just like that, Robbie's twin sister comes to visit John. They were identical twins, but their styles were a little bit different. Robbie's twin had bleached blonde hair. She was thinner, but otherwise they had the same facial features. You know, they're identical twins and the same loving personality. It wasn't long before John fell in love with Robbie's twin and it felt so wrong, but it felt so right. She, I mean, he felt like she was the only one that understood his grief, his pain. They got each other. And just like that, Robbie's twin sister started occupying Robbie's place in bed, and the two of them entered into a relationship, but maybe, maybe it wasn't as natural as you think. Because Robbie's twin was not who she said she was. She had been estranged from her twin sister, Robbie, for a long time, but suddenly she shows up out of the blue. Of course, you could say it's because, yeah, well, Robbie was terminally ill. That can bring family closer together. But maybe the reason is more sinister. Because let's say Robbie's twin sister was a bad person. Let's say she murdered someone or two. What's the best way to start fresh in an easy way? Maybe her twin sister's life started looking comfortable, good, compared to hers. Maybe she wished she could just slide right into her twin sister's spot. Take her bed, take her husband, take her house, take her life. Because isn't it easier to take your twin's already perfect life than to start a new one? That sounds like a thriller movie. (laughs) (laughs) This is a bonkers case. What? So as always, full show notes are available at RottenMangoPodcast.com. But there is an incredible book on this case that was written a long time ago. It's called Poisoned Blood by Philip E. Ginsburg. The book was based on court documents, letters, personal papers, media coverage, and dozens upon dozens of interviews with witnesses. I mean, the amount of research that went into this book is is so clear. I feel like there's not a fact on Audrey Marie that exists out there that is not in this book. It does a fantastic job at diving into like the deep psychological aspects of the killer. I mean, you just get such a close look at the inner workings of the killer's mind. I highly recommend it. So with that being said, let's get into it. Carol found a letter in her mom's belongings. Okay, this is the summer before Carol is set to be a senior in high school. So she's she's excited. She's got that bubbly, nervous feeling, you know, senior year. Finally, we're going to college. Life was finally getting back to normal, too. Carol's dad had passed away recently. So she's finally getting over this this grief stage. She's finding a routine and she's pulling herself together. Carol would even say she's getting along with her mom. Kind of. I mean, they never really had a great relationship, but they're trying. They're heading into that friend territory now that Carol's getting older. Carol knew that her mom's a little bit quirky, sometimes rude, aggressive, controlling, but she knew her mom. She knew her mom well. Or so she thought. One day, Carol was going through some of her mom's stuff out of just sheer boredom, and she finds this letter. It was from a woman who, whose name Carol didn't even recognize, and it was addressed to Carol's mom, Marie. Strange. She opens it up. She starts reading. She knew that she shouldn't have. This is a huge invasion of privacy, but it's her mom, right? The craziest letter that a mom is going to get is maybe from another man. Maybe she's moved on. Maybe some coupons. I mean, how wild could it be? Carol opens up the letter and she starts scanning it. It read, Marie, now that your parents are gone, there is something I think you should know. Everyone that could have told you has already passed on. 
Marie, you were born with an identical twin, a sister. Your father, Huey Fraser, was a twin, and he believes strongly that being raised with his brother Louis caused him great unhappiness throughout his life. The constant competition, the shared attention, playing favorites—he didn't want to inflict the same unhappiness onto his daughters. Soon. After you and your twin sister were born, he gave up one of the babies to a relative in Texas, your twin sister. She has lived in Texas her whole life, and in recent years, her husband was killed in a car accident. I believe she's getting remarried. Huey insisted that everyone in the family keep this a secret, but as a close relative, I noticed something about you. You were always a bit unhappy as a child. I wonder. If you had somehow sensed the loss of your other half, and now that you are older, those who had sealed and kept the secret are dead. Perhaps it'll help you in some way to know that you're not alone. You are not crazy, and maybe if you don't feel whole, it's because you're missing your other twin. This is real. Carol was stunned. Okay, it looked as if the letter was a bit tattered. It had been read and reread and reread and reread. How long had her mother known that she had a twin? Why didn't she tell anyone? Why didn't she even tell her kids? Something about the whole situation and the letter, everything sent a chill down Carol's spine. Because one thing she knew for a fact was that whoever her mom's twin was was in grave danger. Because everyone around Carol's mom Marie would die—a painful death. Not just one person; practically everyone close to Carol's mom would die. And Carol had no doubt that her mom's twin was next. Do you know what an energy vampire is? Yeah,、like、they suck the energy out of you. There was something about the air in Marie's house. It just wasn't good for people. Some people thought it was the dust. You know, the older houses—they have that incessant layer of dust that you just can't seem to get rid of, no matter how much you clean. That was Marie's house. People remember walking in and instantly feeling、oh, like suffocated. The minute that you step foot inside, you feel like your whole body is being dragged down. You feel a heaviness every time you pick up your foot and put it down. There's a there's a pressure on your chest. Some people say they felt nauseous. Their stomachs are acting up. They want to puke. Others reported an instant headache that would take hours to go away after they left Marie's house. It was weird. All you had to do was step foot in. But what's even weirder is that you start noticing: the more you feel drained, the more you feel exhausted and tired and sick, the more bubbly the host becomes, the more talkative and excited and expressive. It felt like an energy exchange, like she was sucking the energy straight from you, and she was loving every second of it. A lot of people left Marie's house feeling suspicious and scared of Marie. It just wasn't normal. There was something about Marie. I mean, energy vampire really is an accurate term. Just listen to what happened with her first husband. One day, Marie's husband Frank was feeling sick at work. He's sweating uncontrollably. He can't keep food down. He's feeling weak, delirious. He's barely able to even get into his car, drive all the way home, and park the car. He just felt so out of it. All he wanted to do was crash in the bed and sleep. He didn't want to set an alarm. He didn't even want to change out of his work clothes. He just wanted to sleep as long that as he possibly could. And he was so thankful that he got out of work early because the house was finally going to be quiet. Kids are out. Marie's at work. So Frank puts his key in the door, stumbles through the living room, stumbles into the bedroom, and just plops down on his side of the bed. It took him a minute, a very long minute. Because he knew what was going on, but he didn't want to open his eyes. And when he did, there was someone in bed with him, Marie, and next to her was her boss. They were both naked. <laughs> what in the world? Marie and her boss were frozen. They did not say a single word. No apologies. No explanation. No, no,、uh, honey, it's not what it looks like. He was just. I had. This is part of the job. I had to get a rectal exam. Hands-on job. Okay. No explanations, nothing. So the dude went in, fell onto the bed,、Ugh. and then it's like, wait a minute. Opened his eyes, and his wife and the boss are laying in bed naked. <laughs> and the crazy thing is, Frank was so exhausted. In silence, all three of them are completely silent. He just laid there for like God knows how long. Maybe two minutes, three minutes. That's a long time. Okay, it sounds <laughs> like it's not, but it's a long time. He laid there with his naked wife and her naked man that she's having an affair with. Then he quietly got up out of bed and left the house. When he came back home, Marie acted like none of that happened. She never even addressed her affair with her boss. In fact, she kept sleeping with her boss even after that.、Hmm. 
So yeah, energy vampire. And you're like, what kind of person does that? Well, Marie is no ordinary person. She was born Audrey Marie Fraser. Always went by her middle name though because it sounded better, sounded fancier. Marie was born in the Blue Mountain area of Alabama to parents Lucille and Huey Fraser. Listen, Marie was their miracle baby. Lucille had suffered a miscarriage prior to Marie's birth, and the fact that they now had a healthy baby girl. Or maybe two. I mean, they wanted to protect her at all costs, okay? Lucille did think it was a little bit odd. Huey was a twin, and twins ran in Lucille's family. So she was certain that she was going to have twins, and everyone in her family was like, I'm shocked that you don't have twins. She said, yeah, it's weird, right? I thought so too. (laughs) What do you mean? I thought they did have twins. Yeah, I'm saying like people thought it was weird that they didn't have twins. Oh, because they gave it yeah. one away. I see, so, I see. Uh-huh. They're like, oh, it's like, I don't know. I thought I was going to have twins too. <laughs> we're just happy we have a healthy baby though, you know? <laughs> and they were going to spend every single waking moment of their lives working hard to spoil little baby Marie. Lucille wanted to be a stay-at-home mom, but times were tough. Even one extra mouth was a lot more to feed. Can you imagine if it had been two extra mouths to feed. The Frasers needed two incomes to support their household of three. So both of them worked at the local linen mill, and Marie spent most of her days being raised by her grandma, which all three of them, the parents, the grandma, regarded Marie as their miracle child. So she was spoiled beyond imagination. Marie got to wear all the pretty dresses that made her cousins so envious. She always wore new shoes, no hand-me-downs, ever. The family bought nicer cuts of meat like they ate lamb chops pretty regularly at home which i don't think i know a single person that eats lamb chops regularly at home or anywhere marie's cousin would come over once in a while and you know have those said lamb chops and she was just mind blown like who has such fancy michelin star food inside of their house like this is crazy like we just microwave some chicken nuggets you got lamb chops Which, side note, spoiling Marie was a vicious cycle for the Frasers. They felt bad that they were always working. So to make up for it, they showered Marie in material things. But to keep up with buying her material things, they had to keep working. So it was very much giving, we have to go to work to make it up to Marie that we're always working. And once Marie was spoiled, I mean, there is no going back. Marie demanded the best of the best and nothing less. And if she didn't get it, she would throw a tantrum. Something about Marie was obsessed with being looked at as upper class. Even though her family was middle class at best, she loved the respect her fancier clothes earned her. She felt sophisticated in her rural town of Blue Mountain, Alabama. The word sophisticated would actually be a trigger word for Marie for the rest of her life. And the reason it became a trigger word is because it all started when Marie and her family relocated from the rural Blue Mountain area to a town called Aniston. And Marie ran into this woman named Jennifer. I'm kidding. This Jennifer Aniston joke. Okay. You looked so confused. Okay. (laughs) He said, okay. Okay. So Aniston is considered considered a big city to the Frasers. You know, Blue Mountain is this tiny little town. Like this is the New York City of the area. The Frasers thought it would be good for Marie to get a better education in a town like Aniston. They always wanted the best for their little girl after all. So after moving to Aniston, Marie goes through a culture shock. She was used to being the center of attention. The prettiest girl, okay? That is that is pretty easy when your class has, I don't know, five girls and 20 cows. I'm not talking about the girls, like literally dairy cows. Like it's that rule. Mm-hmm. You know, most people's kids are cow. Okay, it sounds like I'm calling people cows. I'm not. I'm just trying to tell you more people had more livestock than they had children. Like it's one of those areas. Mm-hmm. So now that she's in Aniston, she's not the prettiest girl. And she was used to being treated as rich royalty. But now people are prettier here. And on top of that, her parents worked in a linen mill. Some of Marie's new classmates, their parents owned the very mills that Marie's parents worked at. So it's like this huge reality check. But Marie was an adapter. She coped with this newfound smack in the face of a dose of reality by eagerly accepting her role as second place. No, really. Marie would go out of her way to find the most popular girl in all of Aniston High School, and she would just latch on. And that girl's name was Rachel Knight. Marie joined every single club that Rachel was in. She became her best friend. She was the Gretchen Wieners to Rachel's Regina. 
Marie always had to stand on Rachel's right side for any pictures or for really anything because she is the right-hand woman of Rachel. I'm her best friend, okay? Anything Rachel thought was cool or trendy, Marie had to emulate. Rachel didn't wear pleated skirts, so Marie stopped wearing pleated skirts because they were ugly and gross anyway. If Rachel grew her hair out, so did Marie. And it was by Rachel's side, right side of course, that Marie met her future husband at the ripe age of 12 years old. It's moving fast in Alabama, okay? It's moving real fast. What's going on? The guy was 16 years old, and the two of them would be high school sweethearts. Frank Hilly was his name, and he was not a catch in Marie's parents' eyes. In fact, he was far from it. He missed the mark completely. Even if there was a ball coming straight towards Frank, he wouldn't be able to catch it. That's how much of a not catch he was. It was all because he wasn't rich. I mean, he came from a good family. They were in the pipe-making business, and they made, and I quote, decent, honest money. AKA, I guess, not rich enough for the Frasers. Frank had two sisters he got along with. I mean, his whole family was affectionate and loving. It was everything that Marie probably needed in her childhood but never had. Parents who were present, parents who cared and didn't just throw material goods at you. But Marie's parents would literally shout at Frank. Yeah, well, affection can't buy our daughter a house now, can it? The Frasers always spoiled Marie. They couldn't grasp the idea that her future husband shouldn't do the same and shouldn't do more than they did. And they made it very clear. So Frank starts feeling the pressure. He needs to make money if he wants to marry Marie one day. And he thought the best way to do it is to graduate high school and join the freaking Navy. He gets in. Once he gets into the Navy, he's like, I gotta propose. Like, I made it now. I'm in the freaking Navy. So he gets down on one knee and he asks Marie to be his wife. And she is over the moon. Like, she's just so ecstatic. She says yes. And he goes off to be stationed in California. And she's like, wait for me. I'm going to graduate high school. I'm 18 right now, right? I'm going to graduate high school this year. And I'm going to join you in California. We're going to have a California dream, a California adventure. And he was like, love you, babes. Flew to California. And this guy really, really loved Marie. I mean, he would send his full paycheck to Marie every single time he got paid by the Navy. Marie is still in high school. And she's getting sent check after check by Frank. And if that's not proof that he's willing to provide for her, I don't know what is. Marie graduates and she's about to leave for California. Her bags are packed. She's excited. Reunited with Frank. This is what they've been counting down for. But then she had to call him. Hey, Frank, how are you? Okay, so here's the thing. I need money for the plane ticket. What? What what do you mean? (laughs) What do you mean you need money for the plane ticket? I sent you every last bit of every single paycheck I've had for the past couple of months. Months. Marie, what do do you mean you don't have the cash? Well, I spent it all. Because you didn't tell me I needed to put money aside for the plane ticket. Marie. Months of work? What could you possibly have spent that on? I don't know. Clothes, jewelry, shoes, food, makeup. Like, why are you yelling at me? <sighs> I was like, okay. That's okay. Marie is 18 years old, you know? She's, she's young. She has no concept of money yet. But everybody grows up. Especially when they leave the house after high school. They gotta start paying their own bills. Okay, it's fine. It's fine. It's one mistake and we will be fine. Frank asked his parents to send Marie the money, and before they knew it, she was 38,000 feet in the air in her new outfit on her way to live with Frank. The couple married and moved around a bit, just wherever Frank was stationed, you know, they moved, and then Marie got pregnant. So they're like, we gotta move back to Aniston. We gotta be with our family so they can help with the baby. Frank quit the Navy, found work in Aniston. Marie even got a job as a local secretary for a high-powered attorney. She gave birth to their first child, Michael. I mean, the two of them were really just living that life. A dual-income household. Sure, they married young, but they were still really proving themselves. But enough was never enough. Not for someone like Marie, okay? She's getting frustrated. She's like, Frank, you said once we live in this dingy old house for a little while, you're going to buy us a bigger house. But hello, we're still here. Marie, we just moved in a week ago. I'm not going to... We just... You can't just live here for a week and expect me to buy you a bigger house in a week. Well, I freaking hate it here. And you need to pay for some remodeling because I can't live here like this. Marie felt like if she couldn't get a bigger house, Frank owed it to her to pay for redecorating this tiny small house, which honestly probably wasn't even that small nor tiny or any of that. But Marie was one for theatrics. She even befriended a local interior designer by the name of Rose White to help her redecorate their home. And she was obsessed. Rose White was her new Rachel. Rose White was 
sophisticated. Oh yeah, her parents were wealthy. She was beautiful. Marie literally gushed over Rose White. She bragged to all of her friends that she was invited for a pizza night party at the White House. (laughs) (laughs) Oh yeah, the White House. Marie was the type of person that would drop lifelong friends in a heartbeat if someone more sophisticated asked her out to lunch. She would sit there for hours and hours just drooling over. You should have seen the White's place. Their taste in furniture, the decor, absolutely exquisite. Oh yeah, they use that word a lot. Exquisite. Just perfection. Marie felt like she could level up her own status by associating with the Whites. Okay, that part kind of sounds racist. Which, like, maybe it was, because Marie was a pretty f***ed up person. Do you get it? Associating with the white. Okay. Marie is just super obsessed with status, okay? (laughs) Marie was willing to drive her whole family into debt to buy a new car that she couldn't afford. She felt like, that's not my problem. That's Frank's problem. I'm used to having everything that I want, you know? And Frank, being the good husband, he really was a good husband. Frank's friends, remember, he would meet with them at local bars, and he would talk about Marie. And he would always say, you know... Marie can spend more money than anyone. (laughs) She can spend more money than I can make. But he always smiled as he said it. And Frank's friend said, you know, he didn't seem upset or annoyed. Like we would be if that was our wife. In fact, if Frank didn't even have a penny to his name and Marie said, Frank, I need a thousand dollars. Frank would find a way to get it. He would do anything for Marie. But even Marie knew that her spending was out of control. She always lied to Frank. She would say, the new bike that Michael has? No, of course I didn't swipe the credit card. Do you think I'm crazy and dumb? My my mom bought it for him. You know how grandma likes to spoil him. It was a lie. She had bought it. She bought it at the store right next to the food processor that she didn't need. But she got both. She got both. And get this, Marie would wake up early every single morning before Frank woke up to go and check their mailbox to intercept all the bills that were coming in with late fees to make sure that Frank didn't see the bills. What? Yeah. What? 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 Not that she was paying them, though. She would just grab all of them and shove them under the mattress. Yeah. You're so shocked. This guy is so shocked. So to Marie, it was out of sight, out of mind. And I'm pretty sure the bank did not feel the same way because there's only so much time before the debt callers come. Debt is one of those things that you really cannot hide forever. Eventually, it comes to light. And the fact that Marie was losing job after job did not help her debt problem. Marie was kind of an oddball at work. She would start the job fantastic, high-spirited, excited, got along with everyone. But slowly, she starts to develop this nasty attitude. She starts accusing all of her coworkers of secretly hating her and talking behind her back. Most jobs, she would be let go for creating a toxic work environment, which I feel like you have to be incredibly toxic to get fired for something like that. Most places have a level of work toxicity. Not saying that it's good, but that's wild that she straight up got fired for being toxic in the workplace. I've never really heard of that. Meanwhile, Frank, he's just getting promoted at work. He was this chill guy, a good guy, except he was developing this drinking problem. Honestly, I think that he was self-medicating to deal with Marie's attitude. Marie was, she was insufferable. It was hard to deal with her. She's constantly craving attention. In fact, if she felt like her husband was not worshipping the ground that she walked on as intensely as he normally does. So if like today it's 99% worship the ground that she walks on, what does she do? She starts getting letters out of the blue from the mailbox. Look at Kevin. He's writing to me again. He wants to marry me. Oh, and this guy's name is, what is it, Duke? Uh, met him at the store, and now he keeps asking me out. And she would just flaunt letter after letter. You know, she's like, I have competition. She would wave each letter in his face. This is another one from a guy named Greg. But I'm not going to go on a date with him because he looks like an egg. Oh, and this is... <laughs> and Frank never actually read the letters, so he had no idea what they said. It could have been Bill's for all he knew. But it was just Marie writing herself love notes and tearing them up in front of Frank. See? See how much I love you? See what I'm doing for you? Ignoring all these men who want to wine and dine me. For what? For you to come home and plop on the couch and ignore me? Yeah. So Frank would have a few drinks over the weekends to help cope with Marie being so extra. 
One night, Marie packed up Michael into the car and went to find Frank, who was at the bar with his friends. And she brings young Michael in. And she starts going in on Frank, screaming at him, yelling. I mean, just saying really nasty things. It was not pretty. She's doing this in front of all of Frank's friends, all of the bar patrons, everyone. Most importantly, she's doing this in front of young Michael, their child. So Marie drags Frank out of the bar. Mike is tagging along. And she's like, you two wait right here at the door while they go get the car. Marie leaves. Frank and Mike are standing in the front, waiting. And Frank, the alcohol is hitting him. Okay, he gets violently sick. He bends over and he starts retching up everything in his system. And when he looks up, he sees Marie approaching in the car. And Mike, the child, watches in slow motion as Frank gets up, throws himself in front of the car with his arms wide, screaming, Come on! Run me over! Put me out of my misery! His eyes were closed. Someone stepped out of the club and wrestled Frank back down to the safe sidewalk. And good thing he did, because Mike would later say that his mom was actually pushing the gas pedal, accelerating towards Frank just moments ago. She started getting faster. It was a really toxic home environment. And Marie and Frank decide, you know what? Let's add another victim. So when Mike is seven, he learns he's going to have a sibling, baby Carol Marie. Looking back, it seems like it seems like Marie never really wanted another kid. Maybe she didn't want another girl or maybe she didn't want a girl from the get go. It was clear that she treated Michael and Carol very differently. So not that she was a good mom to Michael, but she was definitely better to him than to Carol. She stuck both the kids with her own mom, Lucille, who was a complete stranger to discipline. Remember? I mean, have you heard the way she raised Marie just throwing gifts at her? So the same thing is happening to her kids. And it's interesting because Marie now has two spoiled kids with big attitudes to deal with. And she was so upset about it. She never once thought it was her fault. Instead of trying to discipline her kids, anytime the kids would throw a temper tantrum, Marie would dramatically grab a big bottle of pills. She would hold it up in the air, listening to them rattle, shake out a few pills onto her palm and swallow it down theatrically. Look at what you're making me do. I can't take this anymore. You're going to kill me. I've already taken five of my heart medications today. It's probably freaking multivitamins for all we know, but it worked like a charm. Her kids got guilt-tripped into feeling bad for her and they would shut up. It's just so bizarre. But there was just something about Carol that really irked Marie, really annoyed her. Maybe it was the fact that Carol was really close with Frank. That enraged Marie. She would always accuse them of ganging up on her. She would scream, nobody loves me around here. You guys just gang up on me and start talking shit about me. You don't care about me. You don't care about your mom who does everything for you. None of you care that I have heart problems. And then to make matters worse, Marie's dad passed away and Marie's mom, Lucille, moves into the family home. And Lucille and Carol gets along, so now Marie is even more upset. Why don't you just start calling grandma mom if you love her so much, huh? Oh, and you all just wish I would leave so you could be one big happy family, don't you? But this wasn't even why she didn't like Carol. She hated her own daughter because she suspected Carol wasn't straight. You're like, wait, why did she suspect that? Enlighten us. Listen, it's actually super scientific and very intellectual. Carol didn't like girly things. <gasps> She's totally gay, okay? Because all the straight girls like dresses, for sure. She was into motorcycles. Yeah, that really got Marie. She was like, well, there you have it. My daughter is a full-blown lesbian because she prefers a certain mode of transportation over others. It's settled. Lesbian. Listen, I'm not going to speculate on Carol's sexuality because it literally doesn't matter. I mean, she could be gay, straight, bi, anything. Why does it matter? It shouldn't matter to anyone, especially Marie, who should love her child no matter what. But Marie grew up in a small town in Alabama, back in the day, where the given was bigotry. And Marie was someone who cared a lot about what other people think about her. Which, you know, I think it's kind of wild that there's people out there, an alarming amount of people that care so much about what their neighbors and friends think about them, but at the same time, they care so little about what their own family thinks of them. Yes. Like you would rather hate your own daughter yes. and your daughter hate you because you're scared people might judge you for having a gay daughter. But what about your daughter who thinks that you're rejecting her because your assumption of her sexuality? Like you don't care about that? Yeah, this is so fascinating to me. Yeah. I think there's two types of people out there. Yeah. One type that cares about others. The other types like only the people that's close to you matters, right? Yeah. It's, it's so weird. strange. It's weird. And I you mean, can't explain it. I don't think you can even change that for those people. You think they're just born with it? Yeah, I think so. It's so fascinating. Yeah. 
and Marie was one of those people that really cared about strangers' opinions and not her family's. She, she really did not care about her family. I mean, she started taking out loans in Frank's name without him knowing, of course. She went above and beyond. She rented a P.O. box and started directing all their bills to the P.O. box so he wouldn't find out. Frank had no idea that she was loading his shoulders up with a mountain of just unpayable debt. For what? For jewelry, clothes, and shoes. And that wasn't the only thing that Marie did behind his back. Oh, no, 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 no. Marie liked to cheat on her husband with her own boss. She was currently working for a company called Clinton Controls, and Walter Clinton was her boss, who she was seeing intimately. He was six feet tall, dressed nice, mid-40s. Marie was 40 at this point, so they were very similar in age, but everyone said that Marie could easily pass for 25, 30, max. She was a very beautiful woman. There was this instant sexual chemistry between the two of them. Marie spent all her time and money, all her Frank's time and money, to buy new clothes, new makeup, and lingerie to wear for her boss. Meanwhile, Frank's life is falling apart. He was suspicious that his wife was cheating on him. He didn't feel happy or fulfilled. He was miserable. He was financially not doing well. And he was starting to get random bouts of sickness, like the flu. He would recover, but then quickly he would get sick again, and it was just really messing with his work. People suspected that it was the factory that he worked at. The chemicals and the waste products, they thought that it ran into the cooling tank and into the factory's drinking water. The employees said that drinking said water would get you sick. I mean, it was getting so bad. Frank was so desperate. He was vomiting nonstop at work. He would randomly start uncontrollably sweating and get these heat flashes. Frank even started bringing his own drinking water from home. So like I said, one day, Frank's not feeling well goes home early, expecting the house to be empty. Kids are out, Marie's at work, stumbles into the bed. What do you know? Hey, Walter, Clinton, and wife, how are you guys? Yeah, that's how he found out that Marie was cheating on him, in their marital bed of all places. Frank and Marie never talked about it. They never addressed it. Nothing. I mean, it was just this giant elephant in the room and things were very awkward. But Frank thought, I have more pressing matters. I got my own health that's deteriorating that I have to worry about. And it's deteriorating fast. Frank used some of his vacation time to rest at home, but his condition only seemed to be getting worse. The doctors were all pretty useless. They said, well... Look at you, Frankie. Looks like you got the stomach bug. Eat smaller, more regular portions of food. Make sure you can keep it down, you know? You're going to be fine. But it wasn't just keeping the food down. Frank was becoming increasingly delirious. One morning, he wakes up with a stuffy nose. And while he reaches for the navel spray on his nightstand, his hand grabs a disinfectant for insect bites. I mean, the spray is completely different. But he was too confused to know any better. He sprayed it straight into his nose. It just made the whole ordeal worse. Then the next morning, the paranoia sets in. Frank was found on the front porch wandering around in his underwear. Frank, what on earth are you doing? Marie, where is the car? Where is it? Where is the car, Marie? Frank, it's right there. You know what? Why don't we get in the car, Frank, okay? I think I have to take you to the hospital. Frank was diagnosed with liver failure. All of his symptoms were most consistent with liver failure. And the fact that he was a heavy drinker, I mean, that solidified to the doctors. It had to be liver failure, which liver failure is intense. Just to give you a rundown, the liver is the first place where macro and micronutrients go after you digest them. And the nutrients, to put it very simply, they get organized in the liver. So listen, this is a very crude way of saying it, but basically your liver will direct where those broken down nutrients need to go. So all the tissues in your body have a certain nutritional requirement and they put out these signals like, hey, we need some carbs, right? Then the liver will package up carbs like a FedEx facility and then deliver the sugar to the tissues that need the carbs and fat to the tissues that need the fat. The liver is basically HelloFresh for the body, okay? But the liver actually does a bit more. Once the packages are delivered, the liver will inevitably have leftovers, sugar, cholesterol. So all those leftovers are kept in the liver and stored for future use, or they're recycled into bile salts that will get secreted into the small intestine. So side note, here's a cool fun fact, liver edition. The only human tissue that can regenerate is the liver. Up to 90% of the liver can be regenerated. So if you happen to be in an accident that harms your liver, as long as you have 10% of that healthy tissue left, there's a high chance you'll make a full recovery. Thanks. 
Which, side note, Great facts. yeah, really puts Prometheus's punishment into perspective. The Greek god who oh. took from the gods and gave fire to the mere mortals of the world, the humans, he was punished by Zeus and he was tied up, chained up for eternity. And an eagle would come in every single day to eat his liver. Well, most of his liver. And the next day, Prometheus's liver would have regenerated itself by then. Which, wow. side note, humans are not that fast at regenerating livers, but Prometheus is a titan after all, so... That makes sense. Anyway, here's the problem with Frank. If you drink a lot of alcohol, the liver has to process that alcohol. And it can process small amounts, but the problem happens when there's too much alcohol to process. The liver is like, we gotta process this alcohol before we process any of the food. And it becomes so preoccupied with that alcohol. And again, this is a very simple way of explaining it, but it becomes so distracted that it's neglecting other functions. And as it's metabolizing the alcohol, you're left with some pretty toxic byproducts that again, hinder the function of the liver. So over time, regular drinking means that there's more and more toxic byproducts that the liver has to clean out. Especially if you just drink and drink and you never take a break, you, your liver literally needs to detox or else you're gonna end up with liver disease, which is what the doctors thought that Frank had. But it wasn't just Frank's liver. Doctors were suspecting that all of his other organs were starting to fail and he was becoming erratic, delusional. When Mike, their son, came to visit, Mike had to stop his own dad from throwing himself out of the hospital room window. It was rough on the kids. And just two days after being admitted to the hospital, Frank Hilly died. Because he was still quite young and the death was so sudden, the doctor suggested an autopsy. The family agreed, and what do you know? Frank died of liver disease. His kidneys were swollen, he had stomach inflammation, and pneumonia in both his lungs. The autopsy listed Frank's cause of death as natural, and I think the family member that took it the hardest might have been Carol. Because Carol was the youngest. She also didn't just lose her dad, she lost her best friend prior to this. And I'm not trying to say like, oh, Frank was her best friend. No, Carol's best friend, Sonia Gibson, died suddenly at just 11 years old. Sonia came down with this mystery illness, and within two days, it went from flu-like symptoms to Sonia being unable to walk. She had a high fever, vomiting, stomach pain, and she had this bluish tint to her lips and fingernails. Yeah, everyone that knew Sonia was confused. And we're going to circle back to Sonia because it becomes a full picture. But for right now, just know that Carol was very upset about her best friend passing away. And then not too long after, her dad passed away. Marie was sad, too. But she got over it really quickly because she realized she was going to cash in on a $200,000 life insurance policy. She's excited. So this time, Marie decides she's going to be smart with her money. She's going to invest in real estate and stocks. Do you believe me? No. Of course not. What the heck? Marie went on a shopping spree immediately. She went to town. Not a single thought in the world about the future. She bought herself a new car, new clothes, new jewelry. She bought her kids something, of course, with their dead father's money. She's a generous person. What do you think she is? Mike got married, so Marie bought him some household appliances and clothes. She bought Carol a new car and a stereo. Marie even bought her own mom, Lucille, a diamond ring. She was on a high. She felt rich. She felt powerful. She felt sophisticated. Till the money ran out. Then she was snapped back into reality, and she was depressed. She was depressed because Carol was depressed. She's like, God, why can't you grow up? Get over your dad's death already. What's wrong with you? Mike and his wife were moving back into the family home, so now it's going to be extra crowded, especially because Lucille moved in, remember? So inside the house was now Marie, Marie's mom, Lucille, Mike and his new wife, Terry, and Carol, who, yes, is depressed, and Marie will never not be annoyed by that. There was constant family tension. I don't think a day went by when the family wasn't fighting. There was just something about the air in Marie's house. The whole family, I guess, was used to it, but Terry, Mike's wife... You know, Marie's daughter-in-law, she was not. She said something's weird. She started getting really sick after moving into Marie's house, like really sick. It didn't help that she was pregnant. So one day, Terry is four months pregnant and she wakes up feeling horrendous. And I guess Marie is feeling nice that day and she, you just never know what kind of mood she is when she wakes up. But that day, she's in a good mood. She's playing the part of the doting mother-in-law. Terry, sweetie, what's wrong? Are you feeling okay? Uh, it's just morning sickness, I guess. Well, you have to eat something. You have to keep your strength up. Oh, no, Marie, please. God, I'm so sick. I don't think I could eat anything. Don't be silly, Terry. I'm going to bring you some soup. It'll be delicious. And trust me, I've been there. I've been pregnant twice, okay? You'll feel better. 
A little while later, Marie reappears in the room with a bowl of potato soup. Now you eat this and it'll do you good, okay? You need all the food that you can get. It's an important time being pregnant and all. So Terry drank the soup and you know what? It was really good. And for a minute there, she started regaining that strength. And she's like, maybe Marie knew what she was talking about. She did have two kids. She laid back in bed. She's starting to feel better. And boom, an hour later, she's vomiting uncontrollably. She feels pains shooting up her legs and her stomach. The pains become cramps. And it felt like her entire body was tying up in knots. Terry was rushed to the hospital. The doctors remembered that Frank had recently passed. So they were terrified that Terry had gotten hepatitis from Frank. They wanted to give her an injection that would help protect her from the hepatitis. But they wanted her to call her OBGYN just to make sure everybody's on board, right? Because she's pregnant after all. Marie's like, okay, Terry, you lay down. I'm going to go call your OBGYN. Thank you so much, Marie. Really, thank you. Marie comes back into the room and she's like, we're all good, doc. They said the injection is fine. Now, fast forward to a couple weeks later, Terry has an OBGYN appointment. She's still feeling kind of sick, but, um, you know, going in for an appointment and he brings up the shot. And he's like, good thing you didn't get the shot. What? 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 I, I got the shot. What? I specifically told them no shot. My mother-in-law said that you told her it was okay. No, your mother-in-law called me and I told her specifically you should not have the injection at that point. And she reiterated to me that she was going to tell your doctor that. It didn't seem like the shot itself did anything. So Terry was just kind of confused. It, maybe it was this big discrepancy. Maybe, maybe in the whole craziness of it all, Marie misunderstood. She dismissed the whole thing. Besides, she had other things to worry about. A couple days later, Terry suffered a miscarriage. And it was traumatizing for the couple. It was actually pretty long into her pregnancy. So it was even more traumatizing and more so because Terry just kept getting sick after that miscarriage. For the year that they were living with Marie, Terry was hospitalized four separate times. She would just have random intense bursts of vomiting. She would have sharp pains in her stomach. Her doctors were so confused. They had no idea what on earth was wrong with her. And she's the only one in the house. Yeah. Mike just wanted to get out of the house because the dust, the stress, the constant fighting because Marie just loved picking fights. None of it was good for Terry or her health. And when Mike and Terry moved out, Terry's health miraculously improved to the point where Mike thought, is there mold or something in that house? Like black mold we're not seeing? Maybe it really was the dust. But even out of the house, Marie insisted on coming over unannounced all the time. Like she just wanted to be in control of this couple. But with distance, Mike starts putting his foot down. He's telling his mom, no, you can't come over unannounced. No, this is our apartment. You can't live with us. This is when Marie's emotional state just starts to spiral out of control. Her relationship with Walter Clinton was over. She quit her job. There was more workplace drama. She started to feel more hostile and annoyed. And she treated everyone around her like they were evil and they were out to get her. And to make matters worse, Lucille, Marie's mom, had breast cancer and her cancer was progressing. So she needed more hands-on care. And guess who had to provide that? Marie. But eventually, Lucille would succumb to her breast cancer. She did have a life insurance policy, though, so Marie had that at least. It wasn't much, about $4,500. Listen, it's nothing to scoff at, but Marie could spend that in the blink of an eye. She was a professional spender. Even when money was getting tight, which it was right now, Marie did not care. She actually devised a self-declared brilliant scheme in order to make money. She would sit there and call the cops every single day. There's the smell of gas. I think my house is about to explode. Please, can you get someone over here? The police would rush over, and sure enough, there was a smell. They would write a little report. We smelled a little bit of gas. Mary would, Marie would take that report and try to sue the gas company. In reality, they smelt gas because Marie turned the gas on on the outdoor grill all the way up right before they came. Yeah, nothing really came of the lawsuit. Marie did other things, though. She tried to stage a robbery to get insurance money. She tried to start a fire in her own house to claim insurance money. Again, nothing really happened. So she's not getting the money out of this. Her schemes are not making her the money that she wants, but she keeps it up. Why? A lot of it had to do with that. Marie was interested in one of the police officers. His name was Officer Billy, and any time he came around, Marie would put her hand on his knee, look directly into his eyes, and purr, I am so alone. I just need a man to help me. And as she talked, she would slide her hand up his leg until her fingers grazed the tip of his penis. <laughs> personally, personally, 
I would be disgusted and grossed out because that's straight-up sexual harassment. But Officer Billy was no better than Marie Hilly, okay? He had already been seeing several women at the time, and he found Marie hot. So he started seeing her too. Marie kept up her charade of calling the police, telling them that she was being stalked. She was getting threatening calls from men, men who just, like, loved her. They would come out to her house. Nothing was suspicious. The police really didn't take her seriously. They honestly thought, okay, Marie is calling us out to her place so she could flirt with Billy. But it wasn't getting her anywhere. I mean, she's still in debt. None of her lawsuits are working. She had gotten herself into quite the shitty position. So Marie left her police officer, her, you know, boyfriend, and starts dating around town. Her goal was to sleep with a wealthier married man, sweep him off his feet, and convince him to leave his wife with no money so the two of them could be together forever in wealth. Most of them did not leave their wives, but they almost always cheated on them, so there's that. Um, they did not leave their wives, and she would convince them that she had cancer, and they would be guilt-tripped into giving her some money for her treatments. And then what do you know? A few months later... I'm cancer-free. And then Marie did something so suspicious that there really was no good explanation. She took out life insurance policies on her own children. Not herself, on her children. And it's interesting because she got a life insurance, she got a higher life insurance sum for her least favorite child, Carol. Yeah, so she has not Motive and intent. Yeah. Carol's life insurance payout was $140,000. And the sole beneficiary was Marie. And at 19 years old, Carol, who's now in college, she's excited to start her life. I mean, her life is just beginning. She starts to feel ill. She would have bouts of vomiting randomly. She would be in the church parking lot, just projectile vomiting. It was a lot. She constantly felt nauseous. She couldn't keep any solid foods down. She would have to admit herself into the hospital periodically, and the doctors were stumped. They would just give her some meds to make her feel better, but it was all temporary. Within a week or two, she'd be right back at the hospital again. And at the peak of Carol's sickness, Marie, her mom, tries to cheer her up. In the only way she knows how. Carol, stop being so sick. I'm going to buy you a car. Oh yeah, that's totally how mysterious illnesses work. I like it. Carol's not a material girl, but she was kind of excited. She was like, well, I feel better. Like, should we go car shopping soon? <laughs> so she, Carol, Maria's like, yes, Carol. Okay, but after breakfast, we're going to go get you a car. We'll drive to the dealership and you can pick out whichever one you want as long as you're not going to be sick, okay? Carol was so excited. She told her mom, let's just skip breakfast. I'm not even hungry. No, 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 Carol, we must eat breakfast. You know how long dealerships take. We're going to be there for a while. We have to make sure we're full. Carol gobbled down her breakfast in a hurry. They get into the car, and on the way to the dealership, Carol becomes violently ill. She straight up projectile vomits out the car window. Marie pulls over, and she looks at her daughter with concerned eyes. Oh, sweetie, well, we obviously can't go to the dealership today. You're way too sick. Carol wanted to argue, but she felt so weak. She couldn't even talk. So the two of them went to the hospital instead. Carol's discharged with some meds, and a few days later, they try it again. And the same thing happens. They eat breakfast. Carol gets into the car, projectile vomits, and she feels so much worse. She gets rushed to the hospital, and things just start going more downhill. In addition to the sickness and vomiting, Carol starts developing motor sensory neuropathy. She starts feeling tingling sensations on her hands and her feet, and her muscles started to feel weak. But again, the hospital discharged her into the care of Marie, who is just going above and beyond. Above and beyond, okay? Marie starts giving her these mysterious injections. Mom, what are those? Oh, you know, my uh, friend, the nurse, Doris, she gave me these. They're supposed to help you feel better. It's like IV fluid. But it always did the opposite. Carol felt more ill. Her fingers and toes would be numb at one point. She would be too weak to walk. And eventually, Carol was hospitalized for weeks. Which, side note, Carol just had shitty doctors, like, back-to-back. They were so incompetent to even figure out what was going on with Carol. They thought that, okay, well, if we can't figure out what's wrong with her, there must be nothing wrong with her. They straight-up called Carol hysterical, and one of her doctors even sent her to undergo psychiatric evaluation. They're like, you're coming up with this shit in your head. You're, like, making this up. You want attention or something? You got an issue up there in the head? Yeah, because when I uncontrollably vomit for months on end and can't keep food down, it's... She's probably a little anxious, right? Anyway, during that time, Marie went around town to telling everyone who would listen how sad her life was, how depressing she was. Just, oh, poor me, my daughter has leukemia. She was never diagnosed with leukemia. 
My medical bills are through the roof. If only, if only I had some generous souls that would help me out. You know what they say about good karma, right? Yeah. Marie did not care about Carol's health. In fact, Marie didn't even care when Carol tried to end her life with five Tylenol pills. That was a suicide attempt. The doctors were able to save her, but it was just a lot. Finally, around the same time, both Carol and her brother, Mike, are getting suspicious of their mom. It felt like Marie didn't want Carol to get better. In fact, all the times that Carol's condition worsened, it was after staying with Marie, either taking her pills, getting her mysterious injections, or eating her homemade soups. And then Mike thought, Wait a minute, when I first got married and my wife and I were living with our mom, boom, it just clicked in their heads. They started avoiding their mom like the plague and it wasn't too hard because Marie had just been arrested. No, not for maybe potentially allegedly poisoning her own daughter, but for writing multiple bad checks. And this was the break that Carol would need. After Marie went to jail temporarily, Carol and Mike found a new doctor. They told him of all their suspicions and Carol was tested for arsenic poisoning. Like, she had all the symptoms. She even had transverse white lines on her nails. They're common in chronic arsenic poisoning. The doctor tested Carol's hair and found over 50 times more than what is considered normal amounts of arsenic in hair. At the roots, she had 100 times more than what is considered normal. Like, it was intense. So with this, the doctors are able to find out how long Carol had been exposed to the arsenic because it, it goes lower down into your hair as it grows out. Mm -hmm. And it showed that she had been on arsenic for at least four to eight months of just exposed to chronic arsenic exposure. This was the final nail in the coffin. The kids realized that if Marie was capable of poisoning Carol, she was more than capable of poisoning Frank. Mike had Frank's body exhumed and he had insane levels of arsenic in his body. He had died from arsenic poisoning. His liver failed due to the arsenic. Carol was lucky. She would have been next. But now, now that she knew she was going to make a full recovery, but she was traumatized. Frank's family came into town and started searching through Marie's house because, you know, they told their grandma and stuff, found out, or grandpa, and found out that Marie had a bottle of clear liquid, which turned out to be liquid arsenic, just hanging out in her house. She had a pill bottle containing arsenic that was found in her purse at the time. I mean, come on now. The whole family knew that Marie was behind everyone getting sick. And by everyone, I mean everyone. Frank, it suspected even Carol's 11-year-old best friend, Sonia. Yo, why, why is that? So her body was never exhumed. But the fact that she died mysteriously around the same time as Frank, it's suspected that she came over to Carol's place often because this is her best friend, right? Yeah. So she'd hang out at Carol's house. Maybe she accidentally had eaten something that was supposed to be for Frank or maybe Marie used her as a test subject. Yes. Maybe she wanted someone that she wasn't that close to to die because she needed to understand what could and couldn't be found out at hospitals. Would the hospitals know right when they got sick that it's arsenic poisoning? What happens after they die? What about the autopsy? Does the autopsy show it typically? That might explain why Marie was so confident in bringing her own victims to the hospital herself. And even when Frank was autopsied, she was so confident. She's like, yes, absolutely, we need an autopsy. So they exhumed Marie's own mom, Lucille, who allegedly died of breast cancer, which she did have breast cancer, but she got a little bit of help. Wow. They found heavy amounts of arsenic in her body. What's worse is that Frank's mom also stayed with Marie at one point and she had died recently. Everyone thought it was old age. Turns out arsenic oh poisoning. Her too? Yeah. So her husband, her mom, her mother-in-law, potentially her daughter's best friend and her daughter was next. What's even wilder is that remember how Marie kept calling the police to come over and take statements about these random stalking incidents and the smell of gas? Uh -huh. A lot of them reported that they felt sick anytime they drank any water, tea, or ate snacks at Marie's house. Which, honestly, there's no conceivable reason why Marie would poison random police officers. Yeah. Except she was just straight up power tripping. Straight up power tripping. She like, thinks she can kill anyone and get yeah, away. And like getting off on the power. It's hee-hee-ha-ha wow. for her. Even neighborhood kids who came over to Marie's house to drink water or something would go home with explosive diarrhea and upset stomachs. So while Marie is out on bail, a new warrant for her arrest is made. She's being charged with the murder of her husband, Frank, and the attempted murder of her daughter, Carol. Her bail was set incredibly low for a full-blown serial killer. It was only $14,000 for some reason. 
So she gets arrested, gets out on bail, and she's determined not to go to jail. She hires a defense attorney and then skips town. But she doesn't just run away. She tries to stage her own kidnapping, like full-on Gone Girl style, like leaves a note and everything, but nobody fell for it. She had gone on the run, and investigators were always a bit too slow to pick up on where Marie's whereabouts were. Like they knew she was jumping from state to state in the South, and then she just vanished completely. It's because she showed up at John's house. So in order to understand this, we need to talk about Robbie. Robbie was a woman living in Fort Lauderdale, Florida with her husband, John Greenleaf Whittier Haman III. Listen, tell me you're a trust fund baby without telling me you're a trust fund baby. And John was a trust fund baby, but it wasn't that simple. John's whole family was incredibly wealthy and they were, you know, most old money family vibes. They wanted John to be a distinguished member of society. In the family's eyes, there was only four career choices, a doctor, a lawyer, a professor, and any other career choice is practically unemployed. (laughs) Imagine they come across my channel or something on YouTube. The shock. John was interested in cars, though. He just cared about machinery. He didn't care to be a distinguished member of society. He didn't even care to be paid well. He just wanted to live his best life. So at 33 years old, John meets a beautiful woman at the barn named Robbie. And it was kind of like the movies. Robbie was a sex worker, and John was supposed to be her first John, first customer. They met at a hotel bar and Robbie was so nervous. She just needed the money to pay the bills, stay afloat. She had a really tough life up until this point. Her only child was killed in a car accident. She had no one, no family. They had all abandoned her. She's kind of all alone. And her heart wasn't really in the sex work. She didn't think that she could do it. She was really nervous. She profusely apologized for wasting John's time. And she's just like, I'm so sorry. I I just can't, I, I can't do this. John wasn't mad though. She was so scared he was going to be mad, but he wasn't mad. In fact, his heart broke for her. He wanted to help Robbie. He could help Robbie. And John was smitten. And the two started dating. Quickly, they move in together. And that was the start of their fairy tale relationship. John found Robbie hilarious. Like, she just always had this bright smile on her face. She got along with everyone. Even though she had gone through so much in life, she was a tough cookie. She never wanted to be a victim. And then... Cue the record sketch. Robbie was diagnosed with polycythemia. It's a pretty rare condition, and it's when your body starts making too many red blood cells, and it makes your blood thicker and less able to travel through the blood vessels and to your organs. So it was a lot. And around the same time, she found out some life-changing news. Robbie found out that she had a twin and that they were separated at birth. And Robbie had gone most of her life not knowing this. And now she knew she was sick. She was terminally ill. She wanted to make up for lost time. So she reached out to her twin sister. And the two of them would talk on the phone all the time. Wait, how did she find out? The letter letter from the family member? Yeah. Getting to know each other. Robbie made a few trips out of state to go visit her twin sister. And John said that she seemed really happy to get to know her. To see her while she was sick. And then one time... Robbie went to go see her twin sister, and she never came back. John was worried for her. She was gone for three months, and he got a call from Robbie's twin sister. John? Hi, this is Robbie's twin sister, and um, I don't know how to say this, but Robbie passed away. She was staying with us when um, she succumbed to her illness. One of her dying wishes was to have her body donated to science, so um, that's why there's going to be no funeral. Anyway, her other dying wish was that she wanted the two most important people in her life to meet. You and me. So Robbie's twin shows up at John's door and she introduces herself by the name Terry. John even introduced Terry to all of Robbie's old friends, her old colleagues. And her old colleagues thought it was strange. Not that John had moved on with Robbie's twin sister. I mean, yeah, that was really weird. But something bigger was nagging at them. So that Robbie and Terry looked very similar. And like, I know you're like, yeah, the twins, or are they dumb? But it was weird. And they were just, they were too identical. So Robbie's old colleagues, they were true crime loving group. Okay. They banded together. They did a background check on Robbie. And first of all, Robbie's obituaries were all lies. The hospital that she allegedly died in didn't even exist. It was weird. There was no record of Robbie Hanan Hallman dying anywhere. So they reached out to the police and tipped them off about Terry, this very suspicious woman who has taken over her twin's life. And the police thought that Terry was a woman named Carol Manning, who was wanted in the area for a bank robbery. Then they soon realized that it wasn't Carol, and they thought maybe Terry was Terry Lynn Clifton, another fugitive. 
But in any case, they thought, why don't we just arrest her to find out her real identity? So just like that, Terry was arrested in the parking lot. And when she got to the station, the police found out that Terry, do you guys remember Mike's wife's name? It was Terry. Terry was actually Audrey Marie Hilly, going by the name Terry. And she was wanted in Alabama for murder. So if you're like, wait a minute. So Marie is using her daughter-in-law's name killed her twin sister in Florida to take over her life because she's on the run from murder charges in Alabama? Is that what happened? No. Because there was never a a twin twin sister. So she pretend to be someone else, get married to this rich guy, and then pretend that she got killed? Yes. Why would she do that? Exactly. So she literally went on the run in Alabama, pretended to be Robbie, married John, pretended to die as Robbie. She already succeeded. That's what I'm saying. And came back as Robbie's twin sister, Terry. But what's crazier is think about the letter. Carol found the letter of her having her mom having an alleged twin years before any of this took place. What? What was she planning for years? Are you sure? This sounds so it crazy. It sounds crazy. This is dead real. Literally, it's th- this woman is vile and disgusting, but also insane. Okay. So Marie pretended to be Robbie, moved to Florida, tricked John into falling in love with her, lied about the whole sex worker thing too, you know? That was the sob story. Manipulated him, moved in with him, and then came up with a lie about having a terminal illness, faked her own death, dyed her hair blonde, came back as her fake twin sister, and then got caught. Yeah, so how long was Marie planning on this whole twin plot? of her life because think about it carol found the letter years before she went on the run before she was even suspected of murdering her dad or her husband right so what does that mean was this always something that she had planned to go as some sort of escape plan for any of the murders that she committed it seems like it and why even create this whole new identity the robbie identity was working marie found a job as robbie she married john nobody suspected that she was a fugitive wanted for murder from alabama nobody so why make it more complicated and draw attention to yourself experts later speculated that marie was well first of all she was an attention like she just really needed attention she was a narcissist wanted everyone to like she needed drama and theatrics in her life But also it was another way to create more distance between herself and her real persona of Marie. So Marie turned into Robbie. Robbie turned into Terry. So it's like more degrees of separation. Honestly, bizarre. (laughs) And like how on earth did John not realize that they were the same exact person? That part to me is wild. Okay, Marie dyed her hair blonde. And within the three three months that she was gone, she did lose some weight. John and Marie were together for two and a half years. I'm sure he would have known the intimate parts of Marie's body, like her birthmarks, her stretch marks, other defining factors. But you're telling me this full-grown man just accepted that Terry was Robbie's twin? Either John is the most clueless person alive, or maybe, just maybe, he was in on it. And just maybe, Marie convinced him that she was framed for murder, and that Terry and Robbie, like, this is a whole story that they lied and came up with. Mm, so that's a speculation yeah like she was like hey i'm gonna act like i died and then come back as my twin and then we can date as my twin and then he's like hell yeah kinky i like it what yeah like i just can't imagine that john is that clueless because but like you know sometimes yeah which if he's not in on it it's also kind of messed up because he was like immediately starting to sleep with his deceased wife's twin sister so quickly which is kind of messed up too so a lot of questions i tell you but one thing is very clear Marie is a vile human being and I hate her. Like, she's a piece of work. She gets arrested. Her bail is set pretty high this time. She would be tried for the attempted murder of her daughter, to which her defense was honestly insulting. She claimed that Carol poisoned herself to frame Marie because... Why? Because she's gay. That was her reasoning. Because all gay people just run around poisoning themselves to blame their mothers. Yeah, literally what? Marie was found guilty of attempted murder, obviously. She received 20 years, and then she was found guilty for the murder of her first husband, Frank, and received life in prison. She was sent to prison, where she was supposed to rot for the rest of her life, but within two years, just two years, the police, the prison reclassified her as a minimum security prisoner, which made her eligible for day passes, essentially to leave the prison, sometimes for multiple days at a time. 
So just two years into her sentence, Marie applies for a three-day pass to leave prison. What is this, a freaking resort? She gets approved. She leaves. And Marie runs off to spend three days with John. John was sticking by her side for some freaking reason. He continued to support Marie throughout all of this, which makes me believe he was in on it. He claimed that she was innocent. She was being framed. He even moved to Alabama from Florida to be closer to Marie. Marie spent three days with him. And she said, okay, babe, like, let's meet at the restaurant for dinner. But I got to go visit my parents' grave real quick. Yeah, the mom that she killed, go visit the parents' grave. Okay, so she's supposed to meet up with John for dinner, but she never showed. Instead, she left a dramatic note. I'm telling you, this woman loves theatrics. A note that said, I hope you'll be able to forgive me. I'm getting ready to leave. It'll be best for everybody. We will be together again. Give me an hour to get out of town and I'll write to you from Canada. Uh So this time, John notified the sheriff and they start looking for Marie. Why? He, He realized that he had been betrayed. Like he was sticking by her, but now she's going on the run. Okay. What are these people thinking? Yeah. Like what's... Four days later, a woman from Blue Mountain, Marie's hometown, calls the police to report a woman on her porch. She was delirious, suffering from hypothermia, was out in the cold and snow alone. The woman did not recognize Marie Hilly, even though they grew up together. It was a small town. But on the porch, Marie lost consciousness and started convulsing. She died in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. No one has any idea what happened to Marie in her final days. How did she get to Blue Mountain? Her childhood home, why did she go there? Was she looking for help? Did someone help her get there? And if someone did, did they just leave her in the snow to die? That's so bizarre. It's so weird. We will never have answers to that. And to make it more bizarre, last question of the day. Why was Marie buried beside Frank, the husband she murdered? Because, listen, this case is so wild. Is this not the most insane case? Mm -hmm. I've never, like so many different characters, really. Like that's what they are. They're so, like she's a freaking character. She's wild. She's disgusting. I hate her. But like the fact that she got away with being a full-blown serial killer and had no respect for the life of anyone in her life, not her family, not her loved ones. She only ever loved herself. And that is so despicable. And honestly, I'm upset that they gave her a day pass because whatever happened out there, I'm sure it was not an easy death, not a nice death, but she was supposed to rot in prison, pay for her crimes. Anyway, what a wild one. I hope you guys enjoyed this week's mini-sode. I will see you guys on Wednesday for the main episode. Please stay safe. Bye.